Episode 104 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Ilea Danner Grubbs, and with me today are Christina Bieber Lake and Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Hello, Christina and Victoria. Hello. Hi. Before we get into the main discussion today, we're excited to announce that this episode is sponsored by Zondervan's new NRSV Comfort Print Bibles. This brand new edition of the NRSV Bible uses a gorgeous new font created especially for the purpose of readability, economy, and beauty. If you'd like to learn more about this new edition and see all the comfort print options available, visit nrsv.net. They have great videos and information on their site. It's really nice, so check it out. Okay, um, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Christina, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, I said hello, except my mic was off earlier. So hello, everyone. Um, I'm Christina Bieber-Lake. I teach at Wheaton College in the English department. And I live here in Wheaton with my husband, who is an Anglican priest, and our son, who's going to be world-class bowler one day. He's very good for his age. And I am a fan of the graphic novel genre and therefore of the comic origins of the graphic novel genre. So I'm very excited to be talking about this tonight. Awesome. All right, Victoria? Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Uh, I am one of the founding members of the CFP. I live in Minnetonka, Minnesota with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our two cats, Smirjikov and Dorothy Parker. And I have a PhD in literature and gender studies from Florida State University. So really excited to talk about uh, superheroes and gender roles tonight. Awesome. And I'm Ilea Danner-Grubbs. I live in Trustville, Alabama with my husband, Brian, and our two young children. Um, I got my degree from Wheaton College in elementary education with an emphasis in Bible and French. And I taught in a classroom for six years. And now I homeschool my children and volunteer uh, in ministries in our church. And I never had a class with you, Christina, but you were teaching when I was there. So that's interesting. It's too bad I never got a chance to have I know. I, I wish that I had. That would have been fun. But all right, well, um, before we get started, we are going to um, give a spoiler alert uh, for anybody who has not seen Captain Marvel yet. You should definitely pause um, and then go see it real quick, just like right now, and then come back and unpause and listen to the rest of it, because we will be talking about the movie in its entirety, and I'm quite sure we will give some things away. So uh, make sure that you and everybody in listening distance has seen it before you uh, continue on with the podcast. All right, um, we are going to begin with uh, Victoria giving us kind of a brief background on uh, Captain Marvel in the comics and her kind of progression forward in history. Okay, so this is a very brief background. It's not exhaustive. Um, If you know everything about the Marvel Comics universe, uh, you will be upset at me because I will leave things out. Uh, So please don't hold that against us. I'm just kind of hitting the high points that are most pertinent to the film. 
So uh, I'm going to talk about four people who have held the moniker of Captain Marvel primarily. Uh, first, it's important to say that there are kind of three branches of Captain Marvels. One in the DC Universe, which is earlier, starts in 1939. One in the Marvel Universe that we'll be talking about um, today, which begins in the mid-1960s. And one from the Amalgam uh, comics that is, you guessed it, an amalgam of the other two. Uh, so we're going to talk about the Marvel Universe, Captain Marvel primarily, uh, but because it's central to another movie that recently got released, I also wanted to note really quickly that uh, the recent movie Shazam is about the DC Captain Marvel, who is first, uh, he's Billy Batson, and he's first called Captain Marvel, and then later renamed Shazam. So interesting that those two movies came out um, just a few weeks uh, apart from one another. So, Very interesting. Yeah. Um, have either of you guys seen Shazam? No, I, I haven't. I have not, but I really want to because it looks amazing. Yeah, it looks fun and lighthearted. So I maybe after we all uh, get crushed by in-game in the next couple yeah. of days, we can... That will be my therapy. Is we going go see something lighter. Uh -huh. uh, so... The Marvel Universe Captain Marvel is originally also a man. Um, he's first called Captain Marvel, and he is uh, part of the Kree militia. So there, there's a bit of that in the movie, uh, the 2019 movie. The conversation between Carol and Nick Fury about Dr. Lawson's Kree name being Marvel and not Marvel um, is sort of pointing to that history. Uh, the first Captain Marvel falls in love with uh, this woman being, eh, that word is hard to nail down, Eliseus, uh, and they have two children, they don't really have them, they're sort of lab engineered, uh, Genus Vel and Phyla Vel, so biology jokes there, um, and those uh, two children, both Genus Vel and Phyla Vel, eventually become Captain Marvel uh, themselves. The third uh, Captain Marvel that's important to talk about is Carol Danvers, who is obviously central to this film. Uh, she's a pilot in the Air Force. She is Captain Marvel's female counterpart, uh, girlfriend, kind of, uh, initially, and then eventually she's called Ms. Marvel in 1977. Uh, it's important, of course, that she's called Ms. Marvel and not Miss Marvel. Um, it is a direct shout out to Ms. Magazine, which is established a few years earlier and kind of lets us know that we're really in the middle of the second wave um, feminist movement and that that movement has kind of infiltrated the zeitgeist because its language is showing up in comic books. And the last Captain Marvel that I'll talk about, also relevant to... Um, this film is Monica Rambeau, who we meet as a child. Uh, Carol refers to her as Lieutenant Trouble, and she is uh, sort of Carol's best friend's daughter. Um, in the comics, she chronologically comes before Carol Danvers. Um, Monica is an actual lieutenant, a police lieutenant in New Orleans, and uh, she gets the superpower to transform herself into any form of energy. Uh, and uh, she goes by the name of 
Pulsar until she joins up with the Avengers and becomes Spectrum. So those are four um, main Captain Marvels. There are lots more of them. Um, I skimmed over a lot of Cree history and other things. Uh, so if you would like, there's a lot of Wikipedia rabbit holes to fall down there, but those are the high points. And I was really hoping for a detailed, like, you know, political assessment of Cree, you know, history from the beginning of it. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, that was great. Thank you very much. Um, while you're while you're on, Victoria, what were your like personal reactions to the movie? Why don't you go ahead and, and tell us what you thought about it? If you had any um, specific themes or characters or scenes that you really, you know, that really jumped out at you, and um, just your overall kind of assessment of it before we get into some details. So my favorite thing about the movie, and the thing that I still kind of can't stop thinking about, is the degree to which its default experience of the world is female experience of the world. Uh, the the way that the obstacles that um, Carol and Captain Marvel come up against are patriarchal obstacles that tell her to um, stay in her lane and smile more and not be too emotional. Uh, the moment, I, I hate to kind of skip to the end of the movie at the beginning, uh, so sorry, but we already said spoilers. Um, that final confrontation with uh, the Jude Law character at the end where he just he just won't stop talking and and tell her uh, to control herself and I kept thinking during that scene of there's a bit in a room of one's own where Virginia Woolf um, I think it's right before the Professor X bit where she's talking about um, men talking to women and I forget the name of the man she says but uh, she says that uh, women have thoughts and men have views and so-and-so had views and he just kept smothering the women around him with his views uh, and that's what I kept thinking of <laughs> when the Jude Law character would not stop talking and that's why it was just so incredibly satisfying when she just blasts him away like how many grad school classes and how many meetings have I wished I had the power to just like mm -hmm. <laughs> preach it preach yep. it Victoria yeah so um I I love how much the the film explores particularly female um social problems and on a related note my other favorite thing um about the film was the music uh the soundtrack is a complete like uh, every woman power anthem you might have listened yes. to in the 90s. Uh, and the first time I, I've seen the movie twice so far, I hope to see it again. I really enjoyed it. Um, the first time I saw it, we were in one of those movie theaters with the big armchairs, you know. And uh, I was sitting next to a little boy and his mother, and I, like, chair danced so incredibly hard, I think I scared the small child. <laughs> Because I was, I, I know, I'm so sorry, uh, random little boy, but it was just so invigorating to hear this music that you know, was clearly like pandering straight to me in terms of its nostalgia and its girl power-ness. Um, but I, I remember 
being a a middle schooler and uh, being at, you know, awful school dances where you hate being inside of your own body and you don't know how to move and like how terrible it is and hearing uh no doubts just a girl and dancing in a circle with all my girlfriends and thinking mm-hmm. like you know this is less terrible than before because we have this <laughs> uh this song and this notion of community so i did not know how much 12 year old me needed a fight scene set to that song uh but i really did and the music in the film is amazing i've been listening to garbage and hole and no doubt all week and it's uh-huh. awesome that is so great i love every bit of that that's fantastic christina what did you think about it well that's so funny i know that uh, victoria and i are gonna riff on top gun so i just have to say i love the top gun connections but we'll get to that a little yes, bit later so many yes, of them so many of them and that was my nostalgic place and um uh, I I wanted to point out before I got to sort of my overall impression that another important link to Marvel comics would be the fact that in the early X-Men comics, um, Jean Grey was Marvel Girl. And so I think that there's a little bit of link there, too. That's right. I forgot about that. I also forgot about that. Cool. Yeah. And and of course, Jean Grey is an extremely powerful x-men so and i'm you know when i was sitting watching marvel girl or captain marvel i should say i um there was a preview for the dark phoenix film with sophie Mm -hmm. turner and i'm really excited about that and so it just seemed to fit really well and that's part of the reason why it popped into my mind but i think that what i was most surprised about the film and kind of delighted um with it was that it had more to do with origin stories than i expected um connecting the universe together with Nick Fury's loss of his eye and how shield developed into some need to cultivate personnel with special powers and even the name Avengers. I just, I thought that was a really great thing because origin stories are really important when it comes to superheroes and the comics. And the fact that they just made it a really good effort to not just tack on uh, Captain Marvel in some kind of awkward way, but to integrate her with the whole universe felt to me really great. I love that about this film. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, did you have a favorite character other than obviously Captain Marvel? Did You know, I, I didn't. Um, I, uh, I just loved to hate Jude Law in that film, just like Victoria <laughs> was talking about. So it was kind of hard to just get over that. And so, Beyond that, no, it wasn't any particular character that that I loved in that film. Um, You can love to hate a character. That's legit. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. (laughs) Um, Well, I loved it, too. I thought it was fun, um, which, you know, some superhero movies are not fun. They they are serious and dark, and, you know, there's a need for that, too. But I thought this one was very fun. Um, I really appreciated the uh, themes of, like, resilience as a defining human experience, not just a female experience, but a human experience. Um, and I loved, I loved the discussion in the movie of suppressing emotion versus embracing it as a key element of her character development. I thought that, you know, that he, Jude Law's character, whose name, by the way, is Jan Rog, which is a terrible name, but, um, he, he kept saying you need to control your emotions, but what he was really saying is you need to suppress them. And when she leans in and embraces like her whole self, you know, she, she discovers what her power is. And I just, I think that's such a important message for 
people in general, and especially like you were saying, Victoria, like it speaks to the female experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and including the emotion that called her to save his life at the end. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love, by the way, how out of control he is at the end with absolutely. his emotions. Like he's raging at her and, you know, has lost all control of his emotions in the middle of saying, you know, prove to me that you can control. And, you know, he has no control. He's, he's you know, completely lost it. Um, I really appreciated the quirky humor too. Um, the the very understated way that she would just kind of give things like a side look when something went completely crazy and she'd just kind of go, hmm, okay. I felt like that was a very 90s approach to humor. Like that's the kind of humor that like me and my friends would do. And um, I just, I felt like it fit really well with kind of the grunge vibe. Um, yeah, I, I thought that too. Like I got the whole, I, I don't know what her preparation was for uh, this film specifically because I know that she filmed uh, her scenes in Endgame before she filmed um, Captain Marvel. But I, I did feel that kind of like that 90s thing that was femininity that is cute but like also kind of sarcastic and mm-hmm. um, and maybe a little bit angry like that whole Sarah Silverman, mm-hmm. Gwen Stefani, Shirley yeah. Manson thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I thought that was a nice touch and it was very subtle and I, I appreciated it. Um, my very favorite thing was that um, the movie itself did not sexualize her um, or view her through like the male gaze camera, you know, that, like, that. yeah, there were no like gratuitous and impossible, impossible to actually land poses, you know, or impractically revealing outfits. There wasn't even a, a, the obligatory love interest. You know, it was just her as a person is enough and her story arc is enough. And even within Marvel, they've struggled to kind of get over some of that um, hangover from the the comics of overly sexualizing the outfits and the poses and all that stuff. So I really appreciated that this felt like a movie where she was taken seriously as a whole person. That's an excellent uh, point. Yeah. And they could have so easily homoeroticized yes. too. And yes. I'm glad that they didn't because it, it detracts. That makes it more ideological in some ways and just detracts, I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, just keep the love interest out of it. And just that's yeah. not a very big part of people. You know, I mean, it's important, but it's not the thing. Right. Right. Especially when the world is ending. That's right. When the world is ending, you're not worried about who you're going to kiss next. Right. Right. Um, my favorite character was Maria Rambo, the the best friend and the, the Air Force pilot. Their friendship being the heart of the movie. Yes. Was I was there for that. Like, we need more movies where the, the heart and soul of the movie is the sisterhood. Like, that just got to me because they were there for each other and her being a single mom was you know I grew up with a single mom and that really spoke to me and I I found out later that Lashana Lynch the actress who played her actually spent time meeting with active duty pilots who were single mothers in order to prepare for the role um, and to figure out how they balance and how they handle it like she really wanted to be specific in this role to you know um portray that well and I, I thought that was and she did she did I thought she did a great job I have yeah. a question for you Ilya do you have any issues with the sort of you know black best friend thing that I was just a little you know the trope of the the back the black best friend I just yeah I mean, you're right you're right um I do know that she specifically said that she wanted to um draw a straight line from Black Panther through this movie as like a continuation of black heroes doing, you know, important things in the Marvel universe um, that, that she saw that as a position of, of power that she was given in order to continue that, you know, success from black Panther on. Um, but yeah, I wish there had been a little bit more, you know, diversity for sure. I do. Um, since we were, when we talked about on 
um, was it the Star Trek podcast when we were talking about the um, the Bechdel test and then the like racial version of the Bechdel test. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that this actually passes both. That's that you right. do have you know uh, non-white characters talking to each other about something besides a white person, which is That's great. That's right. Um, so that was a positive, you know, for me too. And um, I I also think the fact that I mean everything you've said about um, about Maria and Carol's relationship, I agree a hundred percent. I thought that was great. Um, I also really appreciated the fact that there's this really strong kind of chosen family ethos of these two women raising a girl yes. together mm-hmm. um, to to be strong. Um, to have opinions, to know how to take care of herself. And you were mentioning the kind of Black Panther through line. I do think since they age down, um, since they age down Monica the way that they do there, and she helps design um, the Captain Marvel suit, there's like a a little bit of a Shuri vibe, but not as Mm -hmm. technologically advanced uh, Mm -hmm. there. So if in the future we get to see uh, Monica and uh, Shuri kick butt together, I would not be <gasps> opposed be... <laughs> to that. <laughs> that would be amazing. That'd be great. Shuri, Shuri's one of my all-time favorites. I love her. She's great. Um, okay, well, we're going to move on to um, kind of talking about some specific issues with the, the movie. Um, I wanted to start by just kind of talking about the public reaction before the movie ever came out. Um, there was a huge... I don't know, huge, but there was a big deal made about um, the kind of pre-reception of the movie. Um, the New York Times did an article um, talking about the the rules that had to change with things like Rotten Tomatoes and YouTube, um, IMDb. They all had to kind of change their algorithms because there was so much of a um, – I, I, I don't even think we have like an accurate word for it because backlash would – you know, indicate that there was a lash to begin with and there wasn't, but this kind of preemptive um, downvoting in the tomato meter and um, the, the trolls going after um, on, on YouTube and putting up all these videos about how terrible the movie is going to be um, when they haven't even seen it. And um, it, it came to a head to the point where, you know, several of these huge companies ended up having to um, change the way that they, that they, you know, ran their websites and, and did their algorithms. And, um, so I think that's interesting because that will affect, you know, movies going forward. There was an interview that Brie Larson did with um, uh, Entertainment Tonight. And then there was another one that she did um, where she was talking about um, trying to diversify her press passes. And she wanted to make sure to include um, more journalists with disabilities and more um, journalists of color And she said her quote was, I don't need a 40-year-old white dude to tell me what didn't work for him about A Wrinkle in Time. It wasn't made for him. Um, And that quote was taken very out of context to – well, not really out of context. It was deliberately misunderstood um, by a lot of these people who would go on to troll the different websites um, saying, well, she doesn't want us to see the movie. She doesn't want want white men to see the movie. And – I'm not going to see it because she said she doesn't want me to. And um, which is of course not at all what, what she actually said, but, but because of these um, big um, troll attacks on these sites, they ended up having to take down the want to see score um, that they had going where you could click, you know, do you want to see it or not? And they kind of kept a percentage going just, I guess, to hype it up. Um, 
and they had to readjust the algorithms on YouTube to put um, only verified videos at the top when you searched things like, you know, Captain Marvel. Um, and it seems like it didn't actually affect the release that much. The opening weekend was fine, and um, she, it has gone on to do very well. But but I wanted to talk for a second about this, because why do you think that this movie elicited such a strong reaction before it even came out, before people even had a chance to, to really you know, get a chance to see it? Um, I think that superhero movies have a really vocal fan base, um, not just um, superhero movies, other kinds of comic book movies too. I mean, we saw this happen with the Ghostbusters remake. We saw this happen with the DC Wonder Woman film. Um, I think that female-led movies geared to a particular um, audience, a particular kind of uh, sci-fi fan, tend to be worrying to certain people who want superheroes or comic book heroes um, to look a certain way or who have always uh, seen those kinds of characters fit a male default. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Star Wars too. The the recent Star Wars movies that came out had some of the similar um, backlash kind of. Yeah, all the all the horrible stuff that people said to Kelly Tran and the the fact that there were no Ray toys. Um mm-hmm. we we saw that um earlier in Marvel with uh with um Black Widow toys too, um with her on the motorcycle. There's that scene where she jumps out of the plane or helicopter and lands on the motorcycle and then the toy of that is someone else it's like hawkeye instead or cap instead or i don't remember who it is but it's not her unreal well okay so why do we even need pre-release scores like why is why is this i mean obviously they're trying to hype up their movies and everything but it seems like and maybe it's just the hot take culture that like everybody has to give their opinions Mm -hmm. on everything at every moment but like I mean, what do you see as a good solution to this? Do you think we should just do away with it? Or do you think that there's a, a way to kind of navigate this? I wish I knew the answer to that question, but it is such a product of our contemporary moment, isn't it? And it's hard to know because it does, in fact, affect how people view it. I mean, I always routinely go to tomato meter, you know, to see whether I should see a film or not. So it affects it affects the the view, the perception that people have of a film. So it's a very interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly don't think that pre-release reviews like that should be weaponized um, the the way that this was. Um, Whether or not I agree with sort of the political point of view, you know, whichever direction it goes, um, that that doesn't seem to be a productive use of of those kinds of tools. Uh, But I I will say that I wholeheartedly agree with what Brie Larson said about um, giving um, reviewers and journalists who don't usually get a seat at the table a seat at the table, particularly when the art deals with issues of inclusion and representation the way that this movie does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, do you think that there's a downside? This is the other thing that, that I keep thinking is, you know, they said they removed 50,000 plus or minus a few um, comments from IMDb. That's a, I mean, that's a large number. So, you know, at what point does them removing comments become, 
policing or censorship? You know, is there some kind of a line where, you know, prevention of trolling becomes, you know, a dangerous suppression of, you know, opinion or, you know, do you think that there's some kind of a, a way that we can govern this carefully? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't know the answer either. I will say as someone who has worked in um, audience engagement and listener engagement, my first thought um, when I heard they removed all those comments was, um, well, my very first thought was like, I feel terrible for whoever's job it was to figure out what to remove because I've been in similar situations and that just stinks. Uh, but my second thought immediately after that was I would really like to know um, what their search optimization terms were, what the algorithm was, um, what their sort of limit for hate speech was. Like I'd, I'd the right. researcher part of my brain wants to know what the parameters for that research was. And that's kind of the question of the day, right? I mean, Facebook is dealing with this, Twitter is dealing with this, you know, what constitutes hate speech? Where's the line? Like, this is something that obviously America has been dealing with since we, you know, wrote the Bill of Rights. But in this day and age with the communication level that we have, like, this is the question is, you know, where is the line? What, what constitutes offensive and hateful speech? What violates, you know, somebody's privacy or what violates somebody's rights versus what violates terms of service, which may be different. And, you know, there's, there's definitely some questions there that have to be parsed very carefully. Um, but any other comments on the, the public reaction before the movie or are we ready to go, go on to the next section? All right. Um, well, let's move on to once the movie came out. Um, it broke some pretty big box office records. Victoria, why don't you talk to us about uh, its success in the, the financial department? Sure. Uh, so the second article we're talking about today is from MightyGirl.com and is about the fact that Captain Marvel is the first female-led superhero film to gross more than $1 billion in box office. Um, I would recommend Mighty Girl to anyone with young girls in their lives. Um, it has a lot of really good reading and watching recommendations for um, pop culture with good um, female representation. It also talks a lot about um, giving children of color and children with disabilities representation um, in culture that, that represents them. Uh, so definitely check out the stuff on their site. Um, but this article in particular uh, talks about how it's really a big deal that Captain Marvel um, cleared the $1 billion mark. Uh, it got, as of about four or five days ago, so these numbers might be higher now, um, over $400 million in U.S. box office and over $700 million in international box office. So that $400 million is only $12 million short of the current uh, national box office record holder, which is the DC Wonder Woman. And taken together, uh, these numbers really speak loudly against the assumption that female-led films aren't profitable or that people don't want to see them. Uh, there's this kind of We've talked about the male default a lot um, on this show. There's an assumption that movies starring men are for everyone, but movies starring women are only for women. 
you see this too with uh, movies where race is a central plot point. Um, Black Panther also crushed a lot of box office records um, and lots of people who weren't black saw that too. So what's really starting to happen is that these kind of acknowledged myths of what's true about the movie industry um, are, are being looked at as myths and not as fact anymore. Uh, I want to read a really great quote in the article from um, an agent from creative artist agency, Christy Hobbiger, who said, a lot of times in our business, there's a lot of bias disguising itself as knowledge. Uh, my research team found that female-led films have higher box office returns at every production budget level. The perception that it's not good business to have female leads is not true. They're a marketing asset. So I think it's really awesome that people are actually starting to keep track of numbers for this phenomenon to have real data that we can point mm -hmm. to and say, like, no, your assumption is just an assumption. Yeah, I'm going to jump in there for, for a second. One of the things that I really appreciated about this film and the difference from, say, Wonder Woman is that because they, in, in my view, clearly did not sexualize her, as we've already talked about, uh, Wonder Woman was a little dicier. You know, I mean, it was just like, really? These are Amazons who are going to be wearing that, you know? But there's no moment when what she's, what Captain Marvel is wearing is inappropriate or deliberately trying to be seductive or, you know, seem even so. And I, and, and to me that just immediately made it quite clear that people are going because it's a female heroine and they want to see a female heroine. It's not just the male gaze on, you know, the body of the, of the, of the female. And, and that is groundbreaking in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, so did anybody else have comments on the fact that this broke box office records or um, what the fact that we're now tracking data on um, diverse films might mean? I just think it's great that we have enough that we can track data. Like mm -hmm. I, it, it, for a long time, it's just been the assumption that they don't do well, that they don't succeed, that nobody will see them. So we haven't even tried, like it hasn't even been like, well, you know, um, and everybody always likes to talk about how Electra, you know, was kind of a bomb and then nobody mm -hmm. made another female superhero movie for over a decade. You know, they took that one movie and they're like, oh, no, can't do it. You know, well, of course, nobody did that with, you know, any of the other bad ones that have come out that had male leads. But um, yeah, but, Daredevil but now, was terrible, too. And yeah, yet we're still right. giving Ben Affleck jobs. Right. But he got to be Batman <laughs> for some reason. Um, that's a whole other thing. But but yeah, so I think it's great that we that that as a culture, we have, you know, put some time and effort into this to the point where we have enough to track data um, and it doesn't have to be one movie that is representative of an entire, you know, half of the population's representation, you know, um, which obviously is an issue with um, movies that star, you know, actors of color as well, um, that, you know, one movie shouldn't represent every single, you know, Black Panther doesn't have to represent every single movie that stars a black hero. You know, there, there need to be more so that it becomes something where we can connect data points just like this. Um and, and it, it's so it a little bit still irks me when people try to compare uh, automatically start to compare this movie, Captain Marvel to like Wonder Woman or to um, the other female led movie that's come out recently that came out around the same time, Alita Battle Angel. I don't know if y'all have heard 
any of that, but a lot of the trolling that happened before when we were talking about just a minute ago was comparing this movie to Alita and saying, well, you know, you don't go see that one. It's not nearly as good. Go see Alita. And, you know, since when do we have to choose? We, we can we can go to the movies more than one time, people. And <laughs> and nobody says, well, you know, don't go see, you know, Captain America, Iron Man's better. Just watch that one. You know, no, you go see both of them. And, you know, and so there was, there's, there's room in the world for two yeah. men. There's not room in the world exactly. for two women. Yeah, exactly. So there's this kind of like Highlander-esque, you know, there can only be one that has to be the good one. And then it's going to represent all the others and the others have to be trash, you know, and that's just not, it's not logical, first of all. But second of all, it's, I think really damaging because, you know, we need female leads in every genre and we need, we need female leads in every, um, like they were saying in every, um, budget bracket, you know, we, not every female lead has to be Wonder Woman. You know, you can have, you know, female leads that are just, you know, fun, good, you know, regular movies that they don't have to be this epic sweeping world war one, you know, masterpiece or whatever. Um, so I think it's, it's important that we allow space for, for all of these different movies, you know, to come out together and not have to compare and say, well, this one's good. The other ones can't be, you know, um, that's my soapbox. <laughs> Anybody else have a soapbox they want to jump on real quick? I think that's a, that's a, a really good point. All right, Christina, why don't you um, take us into our specific Christian feminist perspective? Sure. Well, there's a great article that we all read by KB Hoyle, who, with surgical precision, nails the problem um, with the criticism from a certain male sector, uh, Christian sector, that argues that this film is not good for female viewers because since women can't be more physically powerful than men, it will mislead young viewers of the film to thinking that they uh, can be like these heroes. And she just rightly points out that that's absurd and it misses the entire point of the superhero genre and of this particular film as well, because the, it's a metaphorical point, the superhero film. None of us can be like a superhero. That's not the point. It's just about representation. It's about the fact that women can be seen as heroes, can be seen as having various kinds of strength, uh, and that each person, in fact, has particular strengths that they don't even recognize and also, and more importantly, that it's important for women if they don't fit into standard definitions of femininity. Um, and she's so good about this. She says, I think it's absolutely crucial, she says, for girls and women to see representations of themselves as heroes on the screen as more than love interests, supporting characters, femme fatales, or damsels in distress. And that's exactly right. If we're going to get beyond the second sex kind of... Um, dichotomy that Simone de Beauvoir talks about where the male is always the subject and the female is the object and begin to take on subjectivity for women, then you need to be represented in all different types of genres and not just what is expected from a certain gender essentialist point of view. So, you know, the, the film critiques gender essentialism in that way. Um, and I like the way that she put it. She says, we're allowed to have power in certain stories as long as we, quote, stay in our lane as wives or mothers or objects of sexual desires, sexual desire, um, and so on. And, and that's and de Beauvoir is the one who noted that many, many years ago as, as the problem. And it's so great to see films that no longer limit themselves to just those roles for women. So from a Christian feminist perspective, I think this is a really enjoyable film. One of the things I'd like to hear you 
um, both talk about is, you know, at what point and when is it necessary for not so beautiful of a woman to play these particular roles, right? And uh, can we ever get to that point? Because I, while I agree that she is not sexualized in this film in the way that a lot of uh, you know, female characters are and superhero female characters are in particular. She's still a very, you know, beautiful woman. They take care to take her helmet off a lot and have her flowing hair, right? <laughs> so I just wondered what you guys thought about that. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. Um, she certainly is, if she's plain at all, um, she's Hollywood plain, uh, and she's plain because she doesn't wear a lot of makeup in this film. Um, she's, she's you know, wearing the kind of makeup that you wear when you want to look like you're not wearing any makeup. Uh, in fact, there's a, a bit of a controversy <laughs> at what Captain Marvel looks like in the Endgame trailers, um, because her hair is done up a little bit more, and she's wearing noticeable mm -hmm. red lipstick, and people are saying, like, we feel betrayed because mm -hmm. in Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel is super dressed down, um, which, like, all that is true, but... Like, can we give her a break because Endgame was filmed first and she was still figuring out who the character was. Mm -hmm. Also, red lipstick or not, Brie Larson still looks like Brie Larson. <laughs> She's still mm -hmm. very pretty. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I agree with your question. And I think that the fact that people are getting bent out of shape over some red lipstick proves like how much skin people have in this, uh, no pun intended, how much skin people have yes. in this game. Um like it, it is a big deal in terms of what kind of femininity we see or don't see on screen. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. And especially about, you know, a body that's an ideal body, right. Um, slim and attractive and, uh, and, and so difficult for uh, women nowadays to just get beyond that kind of looking at their own bodies with disdain and despair and where else, but in a superhero film, could you actually do that in a way? Because, the power is from something else. And as in all science fiction, there's that idea that, you know, in this case, this power came from the photons or I don't know the language for it, but you know what I'm talking about. So it, it doesn't come from her sexuality or femininity or her brute physical strength, none of those things. So why not have somebody who doesn't have the ideal female body doing this, you know, yeah, it's just a I mean, desire that I have that I agree. I, that's all of this is super great, but show me uh, a female lead who has a romantic relationship and is in a wheelchair and doesn't kill herself in a movie and, and then we'll talk. No, and you know what? And you're absolutely a hundred percent right. And this is across the board. This is not just for women for it's for, you know, people with disabilities it's for um, men who don't fit, you know, certain stereotypes. There's a lot of problems with this. It's just, it's so frustrating because so many women don't fit this ideal beauty, uh, this ideal of beauty in whatever way. And to still have to, you know, not see that represented is, is frustrating. We actually talked about this in the Star Trek episode yes. about that, you know, Hollywood is still Hollywood and mm -hmm. you know, everybody's, you know, five degrees more beautiful than they would be in, in real life, whether it's a male, a female, you know, doesn't, it, the, even the, you know, even the, un, like the men who are supposed to be plain are still more attractive than most mm -hmm. men, you, you know, I mean, like, so there is some aspect of it that is something to be dealt with that doesn't necessarily, it does target femininity in a very specific way, but it is not exclusive to 
you know, a feminine portrayal, it is a Hollywood problem in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's right. With representation. Yeah, and yeah. I, I don't want to nitpick too much. I do think the fact that her Captain Marvel's face is not covered in makeup and that she spends a large portion of the movie walking around in jeans and a Nine Inch Nails t-shirt nine is, inch a nails, hu- yeah. is a huge step forward. Um, I agree. I It is. It's more and, the girl next door rather than the exoticized right. female body. Because right? even... That, it, even in terms of like the '90s thing, they could have gone full Courtney Love and had her wear a, ba- mm-hmm. a baby doll dress and Doc Martens, yeah. and that would have been fine. But they pointedly did not, you know, do that whole thing either. So credit where credit is due. Side note: I also loved her mohawk in the helmet. That was that was really oh, that was yes. hilarious. <laughs> that was and this might be the moment to talk about Top Gun because yes, go for it. <laughs> yes, let's it just, do it. It just occurred to me when I was watching watching the film that this is another way in that she's like, you know, Maverick, because Kelly McGulloch's character says to Maverick, you're never going to be happy unless you're going Mach 2 with your hair on fire. And that's really what she does. She has yeah, her it hair looks like her hair is on fire. That's amazing. <laughs> and so I was just laughing because obviously there's links to Top Gun. It's kind of rewriting of that script with the two female pilots oh, who yeah. are as good as any of the male pilots, right? There are exact shots like the yes. one where she walks out of the hangar with the bag over her shoulder exactly like, talking about speed with the with the aviator sunglasses yes i mean i i didn't do a shot by shot freeze but if i did it would be close very um, close the other Obviously reminiscent the other top gun thing that we should note um, is in the comics there is a cat, but his name is Chewy. Um, I was wondering if y'all were going to bring that up. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, two O's and goose. Um, and, in, uh, and in the film, the uh, cat, not cat, Flurkin, um, is is named Goose, and we learn that uh, Goose has a lot to offer the team. Yes, in a very subtle way at first, and then comes out to be quite powerful, right? Um, and then there's all these funny, ridiculous, you know, sort of sexist lines, like they call it a cockpit for a reason. Oh, and, then the and that guy clenched. is clearly Iceman. He has Iceman yes. hair and does oh, yeah. like the weird jaw clenchy thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then she sees him in her memory scene the second time and then just smashes up the video when it comes up. And that just made me laugh. It's so great. And I guess, um, could, could we draw some parallels between um, Lawson, Marvell, and Charlie in that she's yes. this sort of rebellious woman um, who is a mentor and a leader and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, no, and it, I think Top Gun is, it's clearly not a feminist film, but it's got feminist elements to it. And Kelly McGillis was definitely a feminist person, Um actor yeah and, um, and i i think the um the the romantic subplot which at that point given that it was the 80s probably had to exist but it like it just messes up so much of what makes that movie good exactly because she when they first meet her after he had tried to proposition her in the bathroom and then they realize that she is this you know astrophysicist i mean i'm watching this in the theater when i'm you know when about to graduate from high school. And I was just like, yeah, take him down. You know, she turns around and she's the one that's got the PhD and, and, you know, and they're all embarrassed and they're, they're sliding their, their sunglasses up because I can't believe that I treated this woman just like somebody who's just hanging out at bars. 
and she's very powerful and she upbraids his performance in public. You know, uh, there's a lot of good stuff that happens in that film. But that was fun to see the Top Gun script kind of rewritten in a, mm-hmm. in a direct and obvious way. I thought that was super fun. Yeah, I agree. All right. Did you have anything else about the uh, the Christ and Pop Culture um, article? No, except that it's definitely one that you should read because she does such a good job of pulling out the the strength of the gender essentialism that's still so powerful within Christian circles uh, that to be a man is to be the powerful rescuer and to be a woman is to be the rescued and and just kind of calls that out for what it is as it's a construction and why do we only want films that fit into those categories so it's just a superb job of dealing with that I want to read my favorite line. Well, one of my favorite, there's a lot of favorite lines that I have in here, but uh, the beginning of one of the paragraphs, she says, when bad theology masquerading as Christianity takes a tyrannical hold on cultural narratives, it often allows misogyny to strangle the goodness out of stories. Mm -hmm. A true Christian understands the arts and a a true Christian understanding of the arts acknowledges all truth as God's truth. Mm -hmm. I thought that was just fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Can I read my favorite line now? Yes. Okay. Uh, They must see female heroes whose power derives from virtuous characteristics and integrity rather than from their sexuality. While perhaps uh, because of the curse of sin, there will be conflict between the sexes until the new heaven and the new earth. We can and should seek justice, restoration, and change in the areas of gender inequality. I love that. I love that she, in the same, in literally the same sentence, shoots down essentialism and says part of religious restoration is about gender inequity. I, that's mm-hmm. so necessary. Mm-hmm. I had that sentence also. Uh, Me too. <laughs> so beautiful. Really good job. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth reading. Um, anything else y'all want to t- talk about about that before we go to passing on? Uh, no, I think we can move on to recommendations. All right. Well, for my recommendations, I'm going to recommend two um, books to introduce Captain Marvel to your children. Um, I have a, a seven-year-old daughter and a three-and-a-half-year-old son, and they both um, love comic book heroes although they have never seen any comic book movies or cartoons or anything like that um but they they like some of the books and um the golden books have released a set um they they've released a bunch of them and i've i've talked before about their princess leia one is really good but they have a new one on captain marvel and it's fantastic it's a very you know kind of simplified origin story basically um but it's a great read um for young children and then there's another one that i want to recommend that's called what makes a hero and it is um for a little bit uh higher reading level or as a read aloud it would be great as a read aloud um and it is a series of um little vignettes about basically every female superhero in the marvel universe and it's narrated by captain marvel and so she takes you through and tells you about shuri and tells you all of the great things about her and she tells you about nebula and all the great things about her and and you know so some of the darker stuff obviously is left out with people like nebula but but i love it that it includes such a wide variety that we have 
such a wide variety of female superheroes in the MCU now that we can make a whole book about this that, you know, you could read to your children at bedtime. And it has cute illustrations and um, it's really fun. I, I maybe choked up in the, the bookstore when I saw it for the first time because it was it was very empowering for me to see this kind of thing being so normalized um, and so widely available to uh, my daughter, you know, that she will grow up with these stories of these amazing female superheroes as just normal um, where, you know, we, we maybe had to scrounge to find them. So Christina, what about you? What are your passing on? Well, one of the things I was going to talk about got preempted by Victoria as usual. So I just went with the, <laughs> uh, make sure you see Black Panther and engage in some of the commentary about the importance of representation, because it really is hand in hand, the same thing when it comes to representing everybody, women and, and, and so on. And, you know, there's a particularly good article in Time, but there's tons of different stuff on this, yeah, and I, it's just worth taking a closer look at. Great, great, thank you. Uh, Victoria, what about you? Sorry for stealing from you again, Christina. I'm really bad at that. <laughs> um, so I have two recommendations. One of them is uh, – not exactly a recommendation, I guess. Um, it's, it's an article that none of us really liked, um, but that we disliked so much that we decided we should not um, discuss it as a main part of the episode because the negativity would just detract from things. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to say, while I cannot recommend, um, I will say you should maybe check out uh, a Desiring God article on Captain Marvel uh by Greg Morse. Uh, it's called Behold Your Queen, The Real Conflict and Captain Marvel. Um, and when we were talking about uh, the Hoyle piece from Christ and Pop Culture, and she mentioned these um, Christian detractors of the film who say that uh, it's going to give particularly young women, a bad idea of female strength um, and what it is to be a hero. I am almost certain um, that that author was talking about this author and this piece, uh, who just really, really works hard to miss the point of Captain Marvel as a film, um, and I think is, is just trying to shoehorn the film into his own anti-feminist and I would go far as to say misogynist ideology. I don't think that's too harsh. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think it's important though for uh, our listeners who also identify as Christian feminists to be aware of this article and arguments like it though because it's uh, it's the kind of thing we're going to have to be able to push against. Mm -hmm. And it's very anti-feminist to even naming feminism as the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a uh, let, let's not rant too much about no. uh, about that article. But um, if if you're interested in seeing the kind of thing that the Christ and pop culture article is uh, warning against uh, listeners, you might want to check that out. And my second recommendation, which is an actual positive recommendation, is uh, if you have not yet seen uh, the television show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, I, I was reminded of how wonderful it is because this film um, gives us an early glimpse of uh, Agent Coulson around whom Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. revolves. A wonderful <laughs> performance by Clark Gregg. Uh, so Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., if you have not checked that out yet, you should. You will get cameos from lots of people in the MCU that you love. And 
uh, Clark Gregg is hilarious. Also, my favorite Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. performance um, is Ming-Na Wen as Agent Melinda mm-hmm. May. Um, mm-hmm, yes. Yeah. She's if, so much fun. Love her. Um, if, if we're talking about kind of interesting, nuanced portrayals of female strength, um, Melinda May is a great place to go for that as well. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. That was fun. Um, all right. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Christian Philippic is our press liaison, and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Victoria and Christina, I'm Ilea Danner-Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss sexism in the teaching profession. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.